Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Dan. Uh, this is the Nonprofit Narrative Podcast. Um, on today's episode, our first journey uh, together. So uh, this is an interview that I did a couple months back with Dave Abramovich. He's a Young Life area director. He is responsible for the Los Angeles area, and he's also a pretty great guy. Um, the fun part about today is like this is a maiden voyage. So I had to build a studio, so that's why it kind of took so long. And uh, so hopefully very shortly here, we'll have a lot more episodes. But check out what Dave has to say about what we can do as nonprofits to raise money. One thing that Dave is really great at is raising money. Um, he's actually never had a problem with it, which is pretty wild. So let's hear what he has to say. Check it out. All right. Well, welcome, Dave. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. I'm so excited to be here. We good. <laughs> uh, thanks for, uh, for, for the maiden voyage as uh, we figure out what we're doing. Um, so that's, this is great. So Dave, you do, I mean, you do a lot of things, um, but can you help me specifically understand what you do in Young Life? Because you cover this huge area that is probably unlike any other area in Young Life, I, I imagine, because LA tends to be like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a it's a good area. I'm the regional director for Young Life. That's my official title in Los Angeles. And I, I'm basically a middle manager. I work between the office in Colorado with the people who do direct ministry in Los Angeles across LA. So it's kind of a cool geography because it goes up into like uh, Antelope Valley and Santa Clarita Valley in one corner, all the way down to Long Beach in the opposite corner. And then it's like Thousand Oaks, Malibu, depending on which freeway you're on out to like Rancho Chino. So it's kind of every junior high, high school kid between those four corners um, is kind of the world that I swim in. And so it's a really fun place. Um, there's other places in the country that do my job that are like uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And so I, I'm lucky to have like a super compact space. Um, that's also a really fun and cool place to be, but also has a lot of unique challenges, really great place. So love that, love what it's about. And um, uh, it's been great. I've been here for almost only 15 years in January, which is really something. 15 years in LA? Yeah. So I, I moved here in 2003 to go to grad school. And then um, I've been... Well, I've been on Young Life staff 15 years, and I did that after I worked in the church. I worked at Iglesia de la Comunidad in Highland Park, and then I was at a Presbyterian church in Glendora before that. And um, But I've really found a home in Young Life, and I love what Young Life's about. So it's been a really great, uh, meaningful experience for me. I still get to work with kids directly. I still coach football, all these things that are really meaningful to me. But um, yeah, I, I just love working with junior high, high school kids, kids especially kids that um, struggled when they were that that age like I did so it's a big part of of my story hey oh see I didn't I didn't know that I I was I've been here 13 years I didn't I didn't realize that it was just a little longer for you cool so that's about 17 million people approximately yeah um that he and their kids um so that's fun that's that seems huge so does that does that like weigh on you yeah we we did like a mapping project two years ago and we kind of took all the junior high and high school kids that were in schools, over 200 kids, anywhere within a zip code that was within our region. And it came out to 961,000 kids that are part of kind of the LA region that we would consider like viable target schools. So like if you did like a market study, you know, with 961,000 kids that we kind of said, these are our kids. These are the kids we wanna put a, a, an adult into their life 
walk with them, love them, build a relationship with them, support them through thick and thin, and give them an opportunity to hear the gospel, which is um, incredible, but love them regardless of their response. So just such a great opportunity to walk with kids, to to care about them. But that's a lot. It's a lot of kids. And when I started pre-COVID, which, you know, COVID kind of threw everything out into a new new space, but we knew about 7,500 kids across LA. Um, we had about 400 leaders that were, were hanging out with kids regularly. So we had a pretty good impact on kids. Um, and we were walking with them. And, and our hope is to continue to grow that. But you look at 961,000 kids and you just go, well, gosh, how is anybody ever going to touch them all? And we don't expect to do that, but boy, that'd be nice. And so we'd like to impact as many kids as we possibly can. And, um, but it is a lot. And I think about all the kids that fall through the cracks, you know, and kids that don't have an opportunity to have somebody in their life that, that cares about them. You know, the average high school kid has two minutes of meaningful interaction with adults and that includes their parents. And so, um, yeah, daily. So if you two think minutes. about two minutes, including parents, where like there's like a, a an idea is shared and there's like exchange of listening and stuff. As opposed to, um, I was cool today. Good. Okay. And they're gone. Yeah, exactly. Or like they text. Texting isn't actually exactly, it could be, I guess, more meaningful. People break up over a text message, but um, I don't recommend that. I don't. Yeah, strongly like just strongly do not recommend. But I, um, yeah, kids come home. They eat in their rooms. They're on their phones. They're on their laptops. They're doing homework. They use every excuse they can to not interact with people. And um, you know, if I have a five minute conversation with a kid outside the locker room, you know, we're two and a half times that. And so if we can get two thousand people to do that across LA with kids every, every day, go and hang out with kids to coach them to teach to talk about that, to think about it that way. And, and that's transformative. And, you know, research is very clear that kids need adults in their life that actually care about them that listen to them. And uh, that we're just partnering with a bunch of other places that do that same thing. And, you know, the team I'm on, there's four teachers and an administrator and two coaches, and, and it's a tremendous team and they're making a huge difference in the lives of the kids that they're working with. So uh, it, it's just, um, but that's one place, you know, that's one school. And you got to think about the one, th- I think it's 1,066 schools in LA um, within that geography. And it's quite the burden. Yeah. I mean, it just, just the logistics on it sound like I'm tired already. And, <laughs> and I'm not even doing that job. Just thinking about it is just like, whoa. Oof. Well, if I, if I was doing it myself, it would be like an exhausting non-starter, but, you know, we have a great team of people, mm-hmm. um, gr- great group of volunteers, great group of adults in each community. You know, the way Young Life starts is like somebody in the community goes, hey, who's working with our kids? I mean, that's usually the way it starts, and then they call us, and then different people on our team, um, the regional level, and then at the area level, we have incredible staff people that are called to their place, you know, really feel rooted in their community, care about the kids, know more about the kids in their community than most people in their community spend a ton of time with kids talking with kids going to games and and concerts and musicals and after school to hang out and just doing what they do and these are passionate people that really love and they're the ones that kind of drive everything at the local level and then you get these incredible volunteer leaders or teachers or coaches or people that do it because they love kids um and so it's just a great uh, it's just a great opportunity for them 
when they get after it. But it is a lot. I mean, it's a lot. And, and getting time with people has become increasingly challenging. People have less time. People are less generous with time. Kids are busy and overscheduled oftentimes. Yeah. Um, and it's true in, in both wealthy and not as wealthy sections where kids are, I'm trying to get into Harvard and I'm gonna be disappointed when I get into Yale in some communities. And then there's communities where kids go straight from school. They can't play sports, can't do extracurriculars because they got to go home and take care of their three or four siblings, you know, in their apartment. And so you just kind of think about all these kids and you go, when do they get to be kids? Like when I, when I was growing up, I got done with school, like came home, rode my bike, went to practice, drove up to Subway. Like well, it was pretty simple. <laughs> these kids now, their lives are so different and finding space and time for them um where they can be kids is really challenging and so but they, they still want to hang out they still like that um but it, it is hard to find time for them totally. Totally. so with your your job though it's it seems very highly relational uh, from both a ground level of interacting with uh high school junior junior and senior hires but also just your team what do you do to to stay motivated um, either in interacting with it. I mean, does that, does it give you energy or do you have to go like recharge your batteries alone or how, how do you, how do you, how do you stay up? Yeah, I, it's both. I mean, it just kind of depends on the day, whether it's easy to be motivated because something great happened. Um, or, or if you know, there's some really discouraging things that happen, you know, one of my old young life kids, um, I got a text message on Thursday saying that he had passed away and, you know, kids shouldn't, he's young you know so you get that text message from people and and it's hard to feel motivated in the moment but then you think about the urgency of of these are real kids dealing with real situations and you think yeah who else is having conversations with him like who else is having conversations with kids mm-hmm. um yeah there's certainly like some i mean it's a lot of management kind of stuff and some of that stuff feels really inconsequential on some days when there's really heavy things you know I, I think black lives matter protests made a lot of things seem really urgent and other things seem really unimportant um as you were walking with kids that were asking serious questions and so so i think balancing and understanding that the, the whole project is a, a long game um and then being able to recognize the priority in the moment in in ministry i think a lot of the times you want to make a business decision, but that's the wrong decision because it's not a business and centering people and conversations are are really important. And so I've told this story um, to donors before in the past, but, but, you know, we went down for mother's day with my family, my wife, we were going to celebrate with her mom and do all this and found out that one of our kids got in a car accident. It was very serious. They didn't think he was going to make it. And, and we, literally left 8.30 in the morning from Orange County to come back to LA to be with kids. And it's really inconvenient. Um, I, I don't think I would do that if I worked at some other for-profit company, um, unless I was maybe the CEO. And so you you find yourself going, this matters, this work matters. And kids were saying, kids were texting me that morning saying, did you hear 
I just want to see people. I don't know what to do with this. And it's like, well, let's create a space where you can ask those questions and be together. We have 300 kids in a backyard at 5.30 PM, you know? So, so there's this clamoring for um, connection, for relationships that kids talk about. Um, and so I, I think when you look at it from, when you could see the big picture, when you could see the the difference it makes to have relationships with kids or create space for kids where you actually honor them and let them share and speak and be themselves. Um, it's easy to stay motivated to create spaces like that, to give kids opportunity towards relationships like that. I think when you get caught up and you're like responding to the seventh email in a row or you're in a, a meeting where you're like, we're talking about something and you just go, this isn't the most important thing right now. Or, or that can be challenging. Um, but I think when you, when you can recognize that you're moving forward and kids are being impacted, it, it keeps me motivated. I think at the end of the day, like my personal story is what keeps me motivated. You know, I was a knucklehead kind of junior high, high school kid, parents divorced and didn't have very many opportunities to talk, you know, to be with people that cared about me. And I got really lucky. I'm, I'm one of those kids with like the the high score, you know, for uh, complications in life where, you know, there's a lot of problems that they call it ACEs score. And I have a high number there, but I was lucky to have great friends whose parents were incredible in my life that cared about me. I had a couple of people, football coaches or mentors um, that became my friend and really helped me navigate life. And, um, change the trajectory of my life, you know? So I, I just think of, of kids out there like me who are, you know, I'm a Zennial, so born in between 77 and 83 and was very competent and confident to be left alone and nobody bugged me and I'd get home on my own and I'd take care of myself until my single mom came home from work. But um, I was lucky to be drawn out of that by some incredible people, some of my best friends, parents, or some people at the school and and so I'm just a lucky person who recognizes now how impactful an investment in people can be and specifically in kids that are looking for meaning or hope or help so that keeps me really motivated (laughs) okay okay so how do you how do you approach like so I assume that there's a fair amount of fundraising that you have to deal with in to keep the lights on kind of thing and keep everybody running and have resources, especially because, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but the, the last two years have been, uh, I like, can't even imagine, like, all of a sudden you got masks and trying to, like, hey, let's meet, that's our whole thing, and now, well, maybe you can't, I don't know, like, and just all of that, and then just the crazy response, but how do you approach fundraising? Because I know you do it very well. I know that, that is my, my uh, understanding is it's not much of a struggle. For you which you know for some people will be like how is that even possible that you cannot struggle with fundraising um but so so how do you approach it well first that's very kind <laughs> I, I mean it's a it's a, a very much a, a a luck thing i think and i've i've been lucky to have in my life people who believe in me and also believe in what we do so that I, that's part of it and, and frankly, they have capacity. So I, I was lucky to meet some of the first kids I met when I came on staff 15 years ago. Um, 
I didn't know anything about their families or their parents. And um, they've certainly had um, a, a tremendous impact on what we're trying to do. And um, the, I think the, the biggest thing I would say is I, I don't do it alone. I build teams. That's probably the biggest thing. Um, gather people around and invite them into kind of a bigger vision. That's a huge part of making it kind of a meaningful piece um, for me. I like working in teams. I think that makes it easier. Um, I think you make better decisions in teams. I like diverse teams that make better decisions. So you don't want everybody from the same church or everybody from the same city or everybody from the same socioeconomic background or political background or whatever. And so having, having a diverse team that kind of strategizes that out is really good um, and really helpful for me. At the end of the day, the, the piece that is um, most challenging is uh, for, for people that I work with in Young Life even is actually asking I mean, they just have a hard time asking somebody to help. Um, and I, I don't know why I don't have that same um, concern, but I don't. I like asking people for help and inviting people to help. And I, I can be pretty bold. Um, it doesn't make it super comfortable, but I kind of have recognized that people want to help. And I, I think they get excited about things that are making a difference and impact. And so giving people an opportunity um, is really what we are about, what we try to be about. And, you know, some people, the opportunity is to give $50 a month and other people, the opportunity is they could give 500 million if they wanted to, you know? So given the, given the opportunity to people to say, um, hey, this is an opportunity for you to make a difference without having to do it. You can make a huge difference in the lives of people, but you don't have to do it. Do you want to be a part of that? Um, and this is how I, this is how I see that working well. And and I think people get excited about that. I think um, one of the things I, I like to say about that we take kids to camp in the summer is it's one thing to say, "Hey, you should go to camp." It's another thing to say, "Hey, I want you to come to camp. Will you come with me?" And I think the same is true for donors. Like, hey, you should give to Young Life. It's not the same thing as, hey, I want you to give to Young Life. Will you give? And I, I think that invitation, that, that kind of style of invitation, obviously, you know, you got to have a plan. You got to know why you need it, what you're trying to do. You got to have some, some impact. It's hard to get people to give money when you don't know what you're doing or something like that. But when you have real impact and real vision, I think you can invite people and that invitation, and then you got to shut your mouth. I think that's the other part. I'm not as good at that part, obviously, but I you invite people to give and then shut up. Yeah. And let those people. Wait, you don't want to just fill the space? No. It feels so weird. I want to fill the space. No, you want them to fill the space. And, and they often, you know, they're thinking about it. And, you know, from my experience, I live, I live with a, educator for a long time and um the person who's doing the thinking is the person who's doing the learning so if i can create a space for them to think mm -hmm. about what their what their impact could be if they made a generous donation a sacrificial donation a, a game-changing donation just give them a space to give leadership gifts to make an impact on kids and shut up i think people are drawn to the space 
So you when so so I heard I heard you've got to have a goal. I heard you've got to have some some vision on what what's going on. But then, um, how are you, how what does your pitch even look like? Are you just is it is it on the phone? Is it in person? Is it like is it at a dinner? Is it at an event? Like what when you when you do your fundraising, what does it look like? Yes, all of those. <laughs> okay. I mean, but I think it just depends on the on the capacity. You know, I mean, we'll send a letter. Sure. At year end, like we like most organizations, we'll send a hard copy letter. We'll send an email, like most organizations. We'll send videos in those emails, you know. So, so we do some of that. Great, doing our best to tell stories of impact. And the best thing is kids talking. You know, if you get a video of kids talking about what it means to have an adult in their life and why that matters to them, um, that's better than that. You know, I've learned some things about a, a story about lots of people is not as good as a story about one person. Um, so telling one great story instead of like, oh yeah, we had 32 kids come to camp with us. It's not, it's not as good as, let me tell you about my friend, you know, Andrew, who came to camp with me and let Andrew tell his story. I mean, that's way more powerful. So we do some of that. I, I think the big thing is in, in the one-on-one stuff, um, which is usually where all your high capacity people should be engaged um, or in small groups, maybe, but in smaller settings, um, it's first listening. What do you care about? What is it that you're passionate about that aligns with what we're doing? And that part shouldn't happen in the meeting where you're asking for money. That should happen three, four, five, six meetings beforehand as you're listening. Um, and then I think the sit down with them is, here's where I think you could make a big difference and and here's why it will make a big difference. And then you, then you give them the number and then you shut up and then all the real work is trust after that. So how do you build trust by demonstrating that you are delivering on the things that they said they were giving to? So you, you, I make an ask, it could be $10,000. And if you make a $10,000 ask and they give it, then you, it's on you to demonstrate how that money's being used in a way where they go, this group, this person, this team is trustworthy. And the next time you might get 10,000 again, or you might, they might say, can I do more? Is there something else? Is there? So I think the, the part that is often missed is you make a vision. A lot of people do that. A lot of people will ask people. It's the follow-up afterwards where you demonstrate, hey, here's what we said we wanted to do. Here's how we've done it and here's the impact and and doing that well doing that relationally where you're like actually talking to them and you're it's not hey i'm i'm reporting to you i'm not sending you an email like i'm just telling you about how excited i am about what your gift has done to impact kids um and what i've seen in my history it's brief and it's it's you know la is a unique place to raise money um is people want to help more the people People that want to, the that people just, that. It's so interesting that you're, it's cyclical. Yeah. So I, I think demonstrating trustworthiness is a huge part on the back end of the ask. But the ask is is important. We also do, we, we also do events and do the same thing. Um, but events are kind of weird because you get, you get people that know Young Life really well, people that are like, what's Young Life? And so you have to kind of aim a little bit wider. And so I don't think that's a great way to raise money, but it is a great entry point mm-hmm. for people. And so people get to hear the stories, they get to see. You could talk. Um, but again, all the work is trustworthiness on the back end. And I think that's a vision's a vision. You know, if you haven't have demonstrated any fruit, 
of your work, I think it's hard to get people on board with a vision, regardless of how catchy or cool or fun it is. If you have demonstrated effectiveness and then you build something aspirationally and you build relationships with people where you ask and get to know what they care about, then you can invite people in and then demonstrate your trustworthiness after the fact that you did what you said you were going to do. And then I think people are more inclined to go, this is a great organization. And they might even tell their friends, they may give more. Um, and I think that that does feed itself. Because it's a lot easier to tee up that second ask if you've got that stuff, because that's just ammo, as it were, you know. But as opposed to, I think a lot of nonprofits are really terrible at the follow-up or at the thank you, the response, or what, like you're saying, demonstrate. Because usually it's like, hey, we did the thing. And then it's like, great. And then nothing until the next ask. And then the next that, but did you get the, enough money to build the playground? Oh yeah, we did that. Okay. Do you have a photo? Do you have anything? <laughs> like I gave money to it. Like, I feel like Kickstarter campaigns do better at sometimes responding. Uh, because you get the CD. That. You actually get the CD yeah, or the, get it. the album the art. Or, right, yeah. Hey, you get the board it. game, right. So it is, it is. I mean, I think, I think nonprofits could learn a lot from places like Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think there's just a lot. I, I, I added someone to our team to help me and our region be better at that because with all the things that we're doing um, with kids, supervising staff, working with the volunteers in the areas, planning operations, that's one of the easiest things that you lose sight of um, in a lot of nonprofits. Or on the other side, they have like an army of fundraisers that it's like mechanical. And so we have to land somewhere in the middle because we're not, we don't have the money to afford an army, but we do have somebody who can say, this is the work that needs to be done. Here's a list of thank you notes. And here's four phone calls I need you to make. And here's two meetings I need you to schedule next month just to sit with someone and say, thanks. And, and I think that that work is really meaningful. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little more pointed than it's always, it can feel overwhelming at times, but it is helpful because it's very clear and, and she's incredible. So, That's um, yeah. That's great. So how, what about the pandemic? How did you have to adjust with the pandemic? What, like, cause again, you're an organization that meets weekly, usually with, with teen kids, um, around the area. So what, what did that end up looking like for you during the pandemic? And then, and how did you not, not I feel like pivot, everybody said pivot. So I just feel like if I say pivot, all of a sudden it's like a whole thing. But but like, what did you what did you guys do to, uh, well, to I, make it better? Well, we pivoted, Dan. Oh, all right. Okay, good. <laughs> um, no, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a little bit challenging to do what we do uh, in the pandemic because we couldn't just go. Oh, we have a restaurant now. Let's do takeout, curbside takeout. We couldn't just shift and and offer the same thing because what we offer isn't. It's not a program. It's not a package. It's not a, a binder of readings or something like that. Like so, so it was very painful. In proximity and uh. yeah, yeah. So it was really painful. I mean, it was a really painful shift for a lot of our staff who have committed to being around kids and with kids thirty hours a week to suddenly no nothing like that and we went largely where kids went which is online and on phones uh, i facetimed with kids a ton and texted with kids a ton and it, it was a really painful and sad um situation it was okay i think for the first couple months 
because we spend so much time with kids that we were able to catch up on some of the infrastructure things that we kind of let slide when we're doing all the relational things. But then um, there's only so much of that we really care to do. And then it's, we just want to be with people. And so we didn't really have that opportunity. I mean, we didn't do club after March. We didn't do camp. We didn't do club in the fall. So we had this like really challenging um, season, which everybody talks about. As a leader in our region, it was, it was probably the most challenging work I've done because I wasn't working, coaching people up on how to be with kids. I was coaching people up on how to survive. And <laughs> Unmute your Zoom. Yeah, well, that too. <laughs> I think but you're on you, mute. I think you're on mute. <laughs> still, I, it's still it's still a problem. I saw the same problem. <laughs> but, uh, but no, how to survive in this environment where you're not able to do the parts of the job that are most life-giving, which is walking with kids, which is by far the most life-giving part. If, if you didn't have to do anything else, everybody would be on your lifestyle. And so all these people that are used to doing that and, and all the joy and... Uh, relational heartache that is related to walking with junior high and high school kids and college kids disappeared. And we, we had people that were like in withdrawal. We had people that were in shock, that were angry, that were frustrated. I, I put on like my counseling hat as a leader and went through with our staff a lot of really challenging conversations with them because like a lot of people, this is what I want to do. And I, I, I feel called to it and I can't do it. I'm not allowed to do it. Right. And that was true for them. On the, the inverse was all these adults um, across LA and I think across the country that had resources, some, some obviously were really crushed by COVID and lost their jobs and obviously had terrible situations. And, you know, we lost a handful of of really faithful, great, committed donors just because they couldn't afford it, right. which made sense to me. But then there were other people that, you know, they had healthcare stock or they had uh, their four vacations that they had planned for their family got sidelined. And so they had extra money and people wanted to help. It was a, it was a weird juxtaposition of, our, of, of frustrated staff people not being able to go to schools. I mean, schools were, I mean, I was supporting counselors and like teachers and um, coaches. And then also got all these donors that are like, how can I help? These kids are desperate for relationships. They're not getting, like they're literally trapped in their house and you can only stand your brother or sister so long before you're like, I need somebody else. I need my friends and kids with access to outdoor spaces or backyards were acted like COVID didn't exist. They were just hanging out in the backyard with their friends yep. and kids that didn't, they were really trapped and there. And so these, I think adults understood this. They understood the story and, and they were desperate to help in any way that they could. So they were looking for opportunities. And again, back to the conversation about building trust is calling, calling some of these people and saying, how are you? How's your business? How's your work? How's your life? How are your kids doing? Yeah. Not talking about how Young Life needs money because Young Life, with all the programs down, I mean, our expenses changed sure. Sure. <laughs> quite significantly. But, but 
I mean, it was a, it's a worldwide pandemic for a reason and it affected everyone in some way, some much more than others and asking people how they were doing and, and how Young Life was doing was a common response from these people that really did care. So um, my job changed significantly. Normally I'm a strategy vision, kind of inviting people in guy. And it became a, how do I support our people the best I can? But even in telling that story of, or, hey, here's where we're at, donors were like, that's meaningful work. And when we can get back to kids, the kids are ready. The kids are ready and getting these people ready to go was a super high priority for adults. Our region raised more money during the pandemic than it had in the history of, of the region. Um, and crazy. so, yeah, it's crazy. And it's, you know, we have some incredible people and some great vision and our people did a great job. But I think people understand how important it is, how kids, like kids graduated, they didn't get a senior year. They didn't get a football season or prom. Like yeah. they, they care about kids. And that's true everywhere. That There's not a part of LA that wasn't touched by that. Yeah. And how do we get kids back to talking and laughing and hanging out together with adults that they trust is a high priority for a lot of people. And it, it, the urgency is real right now. And you see it when you talk to parents of kindergartners or fourth graders or seventh graders, they all recognize COVID changed their kids. They're a little bit different. How do we get them back to normal, back socializing, less stunted as quick as we can? And yeah, that's a great venue for that. And so we've had some people that go, let's do this. The other side is we, it was kind of unique timing with our big vision to the center of LA. And so we've been working on it for three years. And then it was, hey, as soon as COVID and the pandemic loosen in a way that allow us to get back with kids, we had already built a plan and had, had set up to go really quickly post COVID. And so people were excited about that and the urgency was there for that as well. And so we got a little bit of a tiger by the tail on the South LA project. Oh, nice. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, do you have any resource, like what are some things like, again, 15 years, so you've, you've, I'm sure you've been through a few resources now and again. Is there anything that you like check out that you check back with? Like I have just a, a few books either on life philosophy or whatever that I consistently go back to. But like, um, is there anything resource wise that you, you listen to or read or watch or anything that, that you uh, would recommend to uh, anybody watching this or listening? Well, I'm a huge fan of, of multipliers, the principles of Liz Wiseman, and that you, you have to give kind of um, the opportunity 